You're about to listen to a message by Pastor Oge Ogwe, the lead pastor of Circle Church International. He envisions all men living Christ-centered lives. Be blessed as you listen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. All right, let's get into the word. Happy new month. Thank you, thank you, thank you. John chapter 4, verse 21 to 24. John chapter 4, verse 21 to 24. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise the Lord. What was the teaching series we ran last month? All right, we talked about joy. I hope you've been rejoicing. You see, the thing about joy for the believer is that um, it is not circumstantial. It goes beyond circumstances. And so regardless of um, how we feel, we can actually learn to condition ourselves to rejoice regardless of situations and circumstances. Hallelujah. Joy for the believer is a walk of the Spirit. It is. It is. It is. It's not a walk of emotions. It's a walk of the Spirit. Okay. John chapter 4. We're reading from verse 21 to 24. I'm reading from the ESV. I think the KJV is on the screen. It says, Jesus said to her, Woman... Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But the Father is seeking such people to worship him. For God is spirit and those who worship him will do so in spirit and truth. My emphasis is actually on verse 22, where Jesus said to her, you worship what you do not know. And this month, I want to start a teaching series on Jesus, on who he is, and what he came to represent. Jesus was speaking to this woman by the well, and he said to her, you worship what you don't know. And I can't help but see how that woman is like a lot of us. Many of us have what looks like a contractual relationship with God. doesn't matter if he didn't sign the contract with you. We have that contract. We, we, we are in a contractual relationship with him. And so you find a lot of Christians who the summary of their Christianity is, is usually around, so here's the contract I'm signing with you, God. I'm going to try my best to obey your laws. I can't keep all of them because they are too much. But I'll try my best. And then in return, you'll bless me. How about that? That's, that's what many people have as their Christian experience. And so, it becomes a problem because you can't be in a relationship with someone you don't know. Is that correct? You can't be in a relationship with someone you don't know. And I know we have 
other teaching series around how God blesses, how to go through difficult times. We talk about joy, we talk about love, and all of those things. But a very important point of Christian doctrine, or a very important point of maturity in Christianity, is when we are able to come together and say, you know what, let's spend some time talking about Jesus. Let's actually get to know this guy. I mean, if he's the one who we worship, if he's our savior, let's get to know him. Let's know what he stands for. Many of us, um, or let me say it another way. You know, during the week, how many of you are on Twitter? Raise your hand if you're on Twitter. You're active on Twitter. Put your hand up. Very few. All right, I am. Semi-active. <laughs> so during the week, I, I, I put up a post, or a tweet on um, the tree of life. I just wanted to start a conversation, you know, with a couple of friends on Twitter who, and they used the opportunity to teach, you know. And so I put up that tweet, and then somebody commented on that, that I don't see why as Christians we ought to argue about doctrine and debate about doctrine all you need to do is just know the Lord for yourself and go on. And I know I get your point when you say, oh, the debates bring divisions in the body of Christ. But I want to say two things. The first is that sometimes divisions are necessary. All right. What do I mean? I mean, it is necessary to know who believes what you believe. Because it is possible that on a surface level, we claim to believe the same thing. But when questioned deeply, we don't. Is that correct? Let me explain. Let me, let me put it in another way. Or let me, let me pose a philosophical question to you. If I buy an axe, if I go to the market and buy an axe, you know what an axe is? Yeah, if I buy an axe and then I come back and um, two weeks later, I change the wood for the axe handle, right? And then three weeks after that, I change the axe head. The axe that I now have, is it the same with the axe that I bought five weeks ago? So what that tells you is I might have substance, you know, on the surface, but intricately is different from what the other one was. We can claim to believe the same thing on the surface, but in depth, intricately, we don't. Do you understand that? Do you get the point I'm trying to make? I'm saying this because there are many people who claim to believe what you believe as a Christian, but are not Christians. In fact, when it comes to what we believe about Jesus Christ, what we believe about Jesus Christ differentiates us from one another. So, there are Muslims, for instance. You know, I've heard, I've heard some people, in fact, many times when I go out on evangelism, people say to me, um, that don't we all worship the same God? I mean, the Muslims worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that correct? That they do. There's Abraham in their theology. Isaac um, appears in their theology. Jacob appears in their theology, and they respect these people. And then the Jews in Judaism worship Abraham, Isaac, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also. Is that correct? Christians also worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that correct? So, as far as theology goes, the three of us are the most popular monotheistic religions in the world. Monotheistic meaning religions with one God, right? 
And then a lot of people just say, you guys are just arguing for nothing. You, you are the same. Because you are all worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No. What differentiates the three of us is our view of God with respect to Christ. What do we believe about Christ? Muslims believe he was a great prophet, true. He came, on the, he came to the earth, true. But they believe he didn't die. They believe he didn't die. They believe if he didn't die, then he couldn't have been raised from the dead, right? And then he couldn't have ascended. So they don't believe in the death, burial, or resurrection of Jesus. Jews believe he was a great prophet, full stop. He died and that was it. Why is this important? Because when you open to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 then tells you that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Which means that this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we all claim to worship is best revealed where? In Christ. So how we interact with Christ, therefore, determines what we interact or what we know about this God. It determines who we worship. Do you get what I'm saying? Jehovah's Witness believe um, Jesus is an archangel, um, not really the son of God, but just an archangel. If you believe he was an archangel, then you believe he was created, because all angels were created, is that correct? And if you believe he was created, then you don't believe he is God. Do you see how on the surface, we all look like we believe the same thing. Do you get it? We all look like we believe the same thing. We all look like we claim the same things. We all look like we are the same. But when you look at it in depth, you now begin to notice the difference. You begin to notice, oh, this person is saying this. This other person is saying this. This is not what we are saying. We're not saying the same thing. Have you ever had an argument with someone that had no end? Then at some point, you now say, what are you saying? What am I saying? Then the person now say, hey, we are saying the same thing. Then you, you, you are too sure that we are not saying the same thing. It might sound the same on the surface level, but when we look at the finer details, they are different. And you see those finer details, they make you a better Christian. You see, because unlike that guy who responded to my tweet and said, "Why well, we don't need to argue, just know the Lord for yourself. We don't know the Lord for ourselves. I hope you know. We don't just know the Lord for ourselves. If, if the entire point of Christianity was your own salvation alone, then after you believe in God, you die and go to heaven. Amen. Amen. Well, if the Lord left you here after you believed in him, then he did so because there are other people who through you should be saved. So we've often taught in church, the purpose of all men is to know Christ and make him known. The problem is, how do you make him known if you don't know him? I mean, do you know that even down to what we believe to get saved, there are specifics. So I I went, I went, um, when I was house hunting in Lagos, house hunting in Lagos is an extreme sport. I highly do not advise for it. Don't do it. If you have free house, if somebody should dash your house, just take it. 
Amen. If you're in your father's house, stay there. You know, everybody wants to leave their father's house until they need to buy cotton. Did you, did you ever leave your dad's house and then start to pay for bills? Then you now start to understand why your father used to shout when he enters your room in the afternoon and your light is on. Did you, did it, have you ever come to that realization? If you haven't, you don't know what the Lord is doing for you. Right? And so, we are not just Christians um, because we, we all say the same thing. I was going to tell you a story of when I went house hunting and I saw this particular agent and I, I used the opportunity. This was August or October last year. I always use every opportunity I get to strike up a conversation. So we were waiting for some other agents. You know how agents, you know you have agents and you have super agents. So agents that are under other agents. And so we were waiting for the super agents, like the boss level agents. And the super agent was taking time to come. And um, so I, I, I struck up a conversation with this other guy. Um, we, I ended up not getting that house, but... I asked him, are you a Christian? He said, um, yes. I said, do you go to church? You know when, when they hesitate, they're like, are you a Christian, yes or no? Like, eh, I do go to church, but I also go to the mosque. Oh, you've not seen people like that before? Oh, they, 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 people like that exist. They're called, the religion is called Chrislam. Very funny. And so, and we all believe in Christ now that he was a great. I said, what, what, what exactly about Christ do you believe? 1 Corinthians 15, um, verse 3 to 5, Paul was speaking. He said that I've, um, I want you to remember the gospel that you have heard and stand upon it because I, deliver, I delivered unto you the gospel as I heard it, um, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So he's explaining to you what the gospel he heard was. He said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised in accordance to the scriptures. So what exactly is the gospel that we believe? He died, he was buried, he was raised. If you don't believe that, you are not saved. Do you understand? If you don't believe that he died, he was buried, and he was raised, you are not saved. If you don't believe that his death, burial, and resurrection was efficacious for the forgiveness of your sins, you are not saved. Praise the Lord. Listen, you might, you might, you need to understand the position of Cornelius in scripture. Remember Cornelius? Let me explain Cornelius' position. Cornelius was an upright man. You know what that means? He was morally good. He was a good guy. Not only was he upright, he was an ardent giver. He gave to the poor. Seriously. Amen. Amen. And he prayed to all his deities. But he still believed that there was a higher deity. And so he was looking for that higher deity. Have you ever heard... The nonsense that people say that the true religion of this world is love. That what Jesus came to preach is love. I agree that Jesus came to preach love. Just not how you see it. Because, let me explain something to you. There's an adage in Igbo. I won't say it in Igbo. I'll say it in English. That it is better. It's actually an English adage also. It's better to teach a man to fish 
than to give him fish. Is that correct? So, a lot of people would say, what Jesus came to teach is love, and the true Christians are those who are practicing what Jesus came to teach. So, if you want to really show you are a Christian, um, give to the poor, motherless babies' homes, and all of those. And those things are important. As Christians, you must do them. However, you can do all of those things and not be saved. Do you understand this? Listen, I want you to get this point. You can do all of those things. You can give to the poor as much as you want. You can um, give your body to be burned, the Bible says. In fact, you can even give your body to be burned not out of love. You know that's the thing, right? You can be a philanthropist not out of love, but just out of showboating. You want people to know that you are. I mean, you see many influencers on social media who just show boats. I mean, what's the point of giving somebody some money with a camera behind you? What's the entire point of that? Sometimes it's okay to do that, but then it gets too much when everybody, we know everybody that, if you see one guy for us, it will be you. You look familiar. Ah, so the person gave you money, have you? Praise the Lord. So what we believe about Jesus is important. Let's not worship who we do not know. And I know this is not the typical teaching that a lot of people like to hear. A lot of people like to go to church and have feel-good teachings. And those teachings are important. They are icing on the cake. But you see this one I'm doing? is the cake. Do you understand? Because what you know about Jesus will define what you expect of him. Do you understand this? He will define what you expect of him. You can't have a relationship with a person you don't know. You know, sometimes I have conversations with um, people of other faiths and they want to claim how they want to claim that Christianity is very complex or it's very confusing. I've heard questions around how can ha- God have children? Have you, have you been asked that question before? How can God have children? Um, how can you claim that Jesus is the Son of God? And you hear a Christian say all of those things are not important. What is important is when I pray, God hears my prayers. Listen, in Christianity, the end does not justify the means. Do you understand? That I pray and God hears my prayers is not enough to have a relationship with God. Because you know who else performs some spiritual acts and have results? Herbalists. Is that correct? Yeah. Jazz is real, oh. Are you, do you hear me? Ah, jazz is real. Raise your hand if you've ever traveled to the village before. Just raise your hand above your head. If you've ever gone to the village east, wherever you come from, put your hands down. Have you ever seen those people who take really sharp knives and cut themselves and don't get cut? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, you have, you have. Thank you, you have. Jazz is real. Like, it, it looks... Uh, it, looks, it looks photoshopped when it's happening. But, but it's a problem because you're seeing it with your two, two eyes and you're watching the action happen. And you're like, this is edited. Somebody edited reality because this is not the way. I mean, they take the knife, they cut something, they cut wood or paper, 
something to show you that the knife is very sharp. And it is really, really very sharp. Then they hold the knife and start doing like this. And nothing happens. And then you two, you want to say, it's not sharp, Joe, give me. Praise the Lord. So, in Christianity, we don't say, because I prayed to God and he answered my prayers, therefore, um, therefore, um, that's all I need to know about God. Just believe in God because he answers my prayers. A pastor friend was talking to me. He had just done a teaching. And then he came, someone in church came to meet him and the person said to him that, sir, see, let me tell you something. My father does jazz. We all know in the compound. And he makes a lot of money from it. As in, he does blood ritual, blood money. So, and he's very well due. He has stupid money that he doesn't know what he's using to do. Tell me exactly what it is that this your Christianity offers me. Listen, if all you know about Christianity is uh, God answers prayers. You are in trouble. <laughs> because the reality is the way men go, um, want God to answer prayers is not the way he answers prayers. And the devil is willing to answer their prayers in a way that they want to just keep them under. Is that correct? Which means that your offering of answered prayers is not as enticing as the devil's own. Should I, say, should I say it again? Your offering of answered prayers, your offering of wealth. I mean, the top 10 richest on that list, you don't have a Christian. You have people who claim they are Christians on paper. <laughs> Some of them are not. Some of them said, I used to be, I'm not doing again. So as far as meeting your material needs goes... God isn't, God isn't making a proposition that I will meet all your material needs if you come to me. Does God meet material needs? Yes. Do you understand? Yes. But he meets it at a level that you need. At a level that will still keep you sane. You know how as a parent, have you seen, let me speak to this. So a couple of weeks ago there was a scandal online. I've not even started my teaching, and I have so much to teach. There was a scandal online, um, a story that broke about, there are many ages, they said she was 10 years, 13 years, 15 years, whatever age she was, the Christlands, how many of you know the story I'm talking about? It broke, it was popular, it was, on, it was on the internet. And a lot of people had hot takes, as um, Twitter people always do. Um, there were hot takes on... Uh, the school, hot stakes on parenting. I don't, I don't necessarily have hot stakes. My own takes are cold because it has passed. However, here's one thing I know. There is a level of restriction that is important. Do you understand? Many of you, your life did not use less because your parents did not allow you to have phone until you left secondary school. You know what I'm saying? Because... Listen, I'm saying, and I don't know, you know, people ask me, will you let your children have phone? I say, I don't know. 
I don't, when that time comes, I've answered that question. Right now, I have no idea. I just know I'm going to do whatever is best to protect them. I mean, in this generation, in this society where you put on your phone and you see images that you did not expect to, you just open the phone and it's right there in front of you. What do you, how do you, you can't even censor that. You, censorship doesn't work anymore. So the hotel I slept at um, when I went to Abuja, um, very terrible hotel. <laughs> and I put on the TV and, they were, and it was on the music channel, right? And honestly, let me say something that many of you might not be able to relate to. When I was much younger, if you, if you used to watch DSTV when you were younger, maybe if you are my age, there's something you would have noticed. They used to show the decent songs in the morning and then the not-so-decent songs very late at night. Is that correct? You know that those not-so-decent songs are the songs they show in the afternoon now. And so when we were much younger, you could walk into an eatery and there's a TV and Channel O is on. Remember Channel O? MTV? Yeah, they are on. And the songs are secular songs, but at least the women are properly dressed. Somewhat. But now I put on the TV, high afternoon, and the woman is wearing a bikini on screen. That's the society we live in. There is an amount of restriction that every good parent must have for their children. The child will grow up later and thank them. God is a good father. There's an amount of restriction that you must ha- he must have for you. There are things that God must say not yet. For you. And the devil knows this. I've often said it. A lot of people think that um, all of the devil's scheme is to keep you poor. No. Let me explain something to you. There are more Christians who the devil has blessed than kept poor. It's, a, it's an easier temptation to be tempted from money than from poverty. So many temptations, poverty will not allow you to fall into them. Is it true? Poverty won't let you fall into some temptations. I mean. So, think of it like this. When you were on your own, in your house, nobody ever tempted you with 10 million naira to steal. Where will you see it? Then the devil has still whispering political ambitions in your ear. I've run for state governor now. And it's not wrong to do so. Please, don't, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to do so. However, the devil is whispering, run, and then God is saying, don't go. The devil is saying, go. God is saying, don't go. And you now say, ah, God wants me to enjoy now. That means the voice that is telling me to go must be God. And the voice that is telling me not to go must be the devil. Devil, every plan of the devil in my life, I rebuke it. So you run for that office and steal the money. Steal the money, use the money till money now begins to use you. Many people don't know that these things are real. I want to be famous, I want to be famous, I want to be famous, I want to be famous. And soon you lose bearing, you don't even know what you stand for anymore. God puts some restrictions on us to let us grow. 
So we can't tell people that all we are offering you is your wealth, your health, and your best life now. Because that's not what God offers you. First and foremost, God offers you eternal life. Hallelujah. God offers you eternal life primarily. Does God bless financially? He does. I mean, if I say he doesn't, if he slap me, say you are very, very ungrateful. <laughs> he does. He blesses you. He blesses all of us financially. But is that what he wants us to know about him? No. And it's not just God. I mean, imagine you were dating a woman and she saved your number on her phone as provider guy. Or iPhone guy. How would you feel if their knowledge of you was limited to what you can buy? This is as far as many people know God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So it's not just enough to say, I believe in Jesus. What do you believe about him? It's not just enough to say, I know God exists. What do you know about him? You know one of my, famous, uh, my, my favorite scriptures is James chapter 2, verse 19. Just go there very quickly. I'm going to speed on from here. Um, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Read the next line. Everybody wants to go. Even the demons believe. So it's not just about believing that there is a God. Demons believe also. Are they saved? Not just knowing that God exists. Eh, if I look around, God, there's God, God day. That's not enough. You're not saved. There are particular things you ought to know. Specific things about your Lord and Savior you ought to know. All right, so who is Jesus? That's the question we're going to answer throughout this month. Who is Jesus? And we're going to do it according to the Gospels, according to what the Bible has taught us. The first thing I want to let you know is that Jesus is, slash was, God, and Jesus is, slash was, man. Jesus is, slash was, God, and Jesus is, slash was, man. And, and in theology, this is known as the hypostatic union. This is known as the hypostatic union. In theology, this is known as the hypostatic union. That's H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. What does this mean? When we say Jesus was man or is man, because he's still man, he ascended as a man. Do you get that? So in heaven, there is a man. You know, we think that when we get to heaven, we're going to see God. And what we will see is one bright, shining light. Raise your hand if that's what you have in your mind. And you get to heaven like this, then you just, from, from the gate, gone. Say, ah! Well, when you get to heaven, you will see a man. The man, Jesus. The Bible says that it pleased God that in him, Jesus, should the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily. 
So all of the Godhead now dwells in the bodily form of Jesus. So when we get to heaven, you will see a very unassuming man welcoming you to heaven. His name will be Jesus. Did you get it? When we say Jesus was man, what do we mean? We mean, first and foremost, that he was the son of man. He was the son of man. Did you ever read in the scriptures where Jesus called himself son of man? But what does it mean that Jesus is son of man? It does not mean that he was born of a man. No man contributed to the birth of Jesus. Amen. No man contributed to the birth of Jesus. If we could just look at John chapter 1 from verse 12 to 13. John chapter 1 from verse 12 to 13. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, verse 13 explains how the children of God become children of God. But they are children of God after the order of the first son of God. Do you understand this? So verse 13 explains how that sonship works. He says, who were born, not of blood, take note of that, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hallelujah. So when we say Jesus is son of man, what do we mean? We mean he was born of God. What does it mean that um, he was born of God? That God put on flesh. Do you understand this? In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, I think that's where I'm going to. In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, the Bible tells us that and the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then you will give birth to a child. So now, you have a child that is not born because a man and a woman did what men and women do to produce children. You know what they do to produce children? They clap their hands and sing praise and worship. You have a child that was not born because of that, but rather you have someone who was born because God put on flesh. What does that mean? You know, God appeared several times in the Old Testament. You know that, right? God appeared to Abraham at some point and then he spoke to Abraham and he walked. Oh, but pastor, God appeared to Abraham looking like a man. Does that not make Jesus just a... Was that Jesus in the Old Testament? No. The difference is this. When God appeared to Abraham, he looked like a man. He, he, he wasn't a man. He just looked like a man. He appeared looking like a man. Do you understand this? No. When we are talking about Jesus in flesh, what we are saying is God himself became a man. He put on flesh. So he now had flesh and blood like you and I. He was hungry like you. You know, the person who appeared before Abraham didn't need to eat. The person who appeared before Abraham could have gone days without sleeping. But Jesus was tired while he was on earth. Do you know how we know? Because he was sleeping in the boat in the middle of a storm. You know, last night, my flight got back. I, I entered Lagos sometime around um, past 11. I got home by till 12 a.m. Um, before 12 a.m. 
so to 12. And then I still needed to prepare for Sunday service, so I, I thought, okay, I, once I entered the house, I just walked straight to my workstation, and I started preparing for service, and I thought, okay, I, I'll just push myself. By 1 a.m., I was spent, so I went to sleep. And then I set an alarm to wake me up, I think, by 6, so that I can continue. I woke up by 7.30 when my wife came to tap me. That guy, it's Sunday morning at 7.30. Wake up. Because I was tired. That was Jesus. Sleeping in a boat in the middle of a storm. You know what a storm looks like? You know a boat doesn't sail smoothly in a storm? It rocks. Heavily. Some of you, just little bump. Jesus. My guy was sleeping. He was knocked out in the storm. He was a man. He was tired. He was hungry. Matthew chapter 4 tells us he fasted and he was hungry. So this isn't just some deity looking like a man or some spirit looking like a man. No, he came in flesh. It was a man like you and I. And the reason why this is so important, first and foremost, is it was a fulfillment of a prophecy. Daniel prophesied this. I bet many of you, the only thing you know about Daniel is that he excelled, he did not eat, he ate vegetable, and then he did better. <laughs> Daniel was a prophet. Amen. And he prophesied this, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. He said, I saw in the night visions, media team, if you could just go there very quickly. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heavens, um, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away. And his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So Daniel here prophesies that the Messiah was going to be a man. Praise the Lord. So hear me. Jesus was a man. Do you get it? Listen, why is this important or why am I taking time to stress it? Because somewhere in the corner of your mind, you think or you still, you had the mindset that he was a spirit being hovering over the surface of the earth. He was just moving. He was a spirit. So he wasn't subject to the things that you are subject to. This is the reason why many people cannot relate to Jesus in scripture. Because a lot of them don't know that he was subject to the temptations you are subject to. He felt what he... I mean, when he was small, when his mother was baiting him, she probably wiped his bonbon. Stop doing that. Because he was probably drinking the baiting water. Like children do. He was a man! Hallelujah. He was truly a man. In all the weaknesses, in all, he was a man. And why did he become a man? I taught you this um, two Sundays ago when we did Jesus' joy. Why did he become a man? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What are these same things? Flesh and blood. So that by his death, he can free those who have been held under the captivity of sin. So Jesus became a man so that he could die in your place. Do you understand it? Because you are a man, because you are flesh and blood, he put on flesh and blood too.
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so like we read, Luke one thirty-five. the reason why I'm going through all of these scriptures all over is the next time someone should ask you, I want you to have an answer ready. Do you understand? Some of these things you know, but you don't know how to explain it to people. Learn it now. He was a man. He is a man. You know, you read Hebrews chapter 10. He says, Hebrews chapter, go to Hebrews 10. Let me show you something. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Hebrews 10, 11. Hebrews 10, 11. I want to just show you something. Everybody read together once ago. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering sometimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Verse 12 together. But this, but this who? But this who? He was a man. He still is a man. Do you understand? It was his humanity that made him the perfect sacrifice. Listen, bulls and goats could not have taken your place because you're not a goat. But some people are, but... (laughs) Praise the Lord. And so... When we call Jesus the Son of Man, we make reference to the incarnation. We make reference to the incarnation, the system. What's the meaning of the word incarnation? The word incarnation means a spirit embodied. Have you ever heard the phrase, the devil's incarnate? When you say someone is devil's incarnate, what what you're trying to say is, this person you are seeing now is the devil in human flesh. Do you understand? Some of you call people things that you don't understand. See, that guy, he's devil's incarnate. You don't really mean it to work. He's a bad boy. He's the devil's incarnate. So when we say, um, when we're talking about the incarnation of Jesus, what we're talking about is God in human flesh. He put on flesh. Do you understand this? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was God. The same was God. In the beginning, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made. That was made. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Darkness could not comprehend it. Verse 14. And the Word put on flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. The Word put on flesh. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so, what I just quoted to you in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt amongst us as of the only begotten of the Father. That's a phrase you must come to know. Um, when, when you say only begotten, what does it mean? These are things that as a Christian you ought to know. And I know some of you, you've heard it so many times, I've taught you so many times, but Paul says to repeat these things to you is not grievous. So I will repeat it again and again until it's in your head. In your sleep, you can answer questions. Do you get it? I mean, you shouldn't be face to face with somebody who doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ and you don't know what to say. I think next week I'm going to talk about the deity of Jesus. I'll take time to talk about Jesus, the deity of Jesus, what it means um, that Jesus is God. When we refer to Jesus... 
as the only begotten of the Father, what does it mean? Some translations, instead of saying only begotten, they say uniquely begotten or the unique son of the Father. That phrase only begotten is, is one word in the Greek, monogenes, that's M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-I-S. M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-I-S. And what does the phrase mean? The phrase means the only of its kind. The only one of its kind. So when we say Jesus was the only begotten of the Father, as at the time he was saying that, he was the only one of his kind. What made him different from every other man? On the earth, he was the only one who at the time had the Spirit of God both upon him and within him. So you read the Old Testament, for instance, and you would see several times when the Holy Spirit needed to empower people to do things, you would see the phrase, and the Spirit of God came upon so-so person and he did this. Remember that phrase? The Spirit of God came upon Elijah, he outran the chariots. The Spirit of God came upon Samson, he pulled down the pillars of that place, carried the city gates up and did whatever he wanted to do. The Spirit of God came upon David, he began to prophesy. The Spirit of God came upon Samuel, he began to prophesy. So the Spirit of God coming upon people in the Old Testament made them do things, but you never see the phrase that the Spirit of God was in someone. What you have is the spirit of wisdom, what this person had, the spirit of wisdom. What are they trying to say? He was wise or he was skillful. There's one, is it Bezalel? I can't remember his name. Who, who was skillful. That's what they mean when they say he had the spirit of wisdom. He was skillful. But the spirit of God never indwelled anyone in the Old Testament. Why? Because you don't put new wine in old wine skin. Do you get it? Do you understand? So the Holy Spirit, the, the, the person carrying the spirit must have been sanctified by believing in the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you understand it? For him to be good enough to carry the Holy Ghost. So until the death of Jesus, nobody had the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, except Jesus. Only begotten. Only begotten Son of God. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he was born. He was not created. Do you get it? Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 um, Verse 15 to 17. He says, he's, are we there? He says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Take note of that. He calls him the firstborn of all creation, not the first one to be created. I'll explain firstborn in a bit. He says, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Look at that. He says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He wasn't created. He wasn't made. Do you get this? Christ wasn't made. Why am I stressing on the fact that he wasn't created? Because angels are created. So when someone calls him an archangel, you mean he was created, but he wasn't. He created all things for him and by him. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? When Paul in Colossians says, for by him all things were created, what does it mean? He's just 
um, giving commentary to John chapter 1, where John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was God. Um, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God, verse 3, and all things were created through him. So the Word was the agency of creation. But this Word that was, an, was the agency of creation was still God. Do you get it? Uh-huh. I've explained to you how the Trinity can be understood and at the same time misunderstood. It's a very complex idea. But he wasn't created. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Only begotten. Only begotten Son of God. When he says, and, and that phrase, Son of God, is actually not used particularly for Jesus alone. I hope you know. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. Are you there? You guys don't sound like you're there. Are you there? Should we do Father Abraham? Some of you are looking like you're tired and you're sleeping. Are you there? All right, everybody, Genesis 6, 1 to 2, 1 to go. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Who saw the sons of God? Do you see? So it's not just a term that is used for Jesus alone. Um, um, Job 1, 6. Job 1, 6. Are you there? All right. He says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Who came to present themselves? Sons. So the phrase sons of God would usually make reference to anything or anyone created by God, usually or more especially the angels and other spirit beings. Do you get it? Yes, and so that phrase is not unique to Jesus alone. But when applied to Jesus, it has a different meaning. I'm saying this because someone could stop you and say, well, the Bible says Jesus was the only son of God in John chapter 1. And you will say yes. And then the Bible would now say, what about Genesis 6, the sons of God? What about Job um, 1? The sons of God. What do you make about those two? You need to understand the phraseology is applied differently when you are speaking to Christ. When you are speaking about Jesus Christ, you are talking about something different when you refer to him as the son of God. For these other people, it means one created by God. But when we are referring to Jesus as the son of God, we are referring to him as one who proceeds from the Father. One who is from God. That is, God put on flesh. Are you getting this? So when we say only begotten son of God, we're not saying the only one that the father gave birth to. Do you get? The father did not give birth to anyone. Amen. Uh-huh. So we're not saying the only one that the father gave birth to, but rather we are saying um, the, un- so, the man in flesh that is so unique that we can identify him as the one who came as God in flesh. Do you get it? That we see unique characteristics in this person 
that proved to us that, ah, this is God put on flesh. Put up John 1.14. Let me explain that in another way for you. Look at this. And the word dwelt amongst us. And he says, and we have seen his glory. We've seen, let me replace that word glory with a word you may be more um, able to relate to. We have seen his doings. Amen. We have seen his doings. Doings as of the only son from the father. That is, when we observe his doings, we can tell, ah, this is the uniquely begotten son of God. Other angels, we can call them sons of God, but there's something about this guy. He's different. He's uniquely begotten. He's not like the others. He's different. And so we now investigate what makes him different and realize, oh, all these other sons of God, they're angels, they were created, but this is God in flesh. Do you see the difference? So for these ones, the term might mean something else, but he means different. Do you understand? Let me explain. When you call Jesus the Son of God, you are actually calling him God. Do you understand? Because what they are saying here is, when we beheld his glory, when we saw his doings, when we saw his actions, we could not but see how this is, this is the Father. This is why Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus said, ah. Have I been with you for so long and you still don't know the Father? It's as if you don't believe me because of the things that I say. At least believe me because of the works that I do. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Do you understand this? If you don't believe me because of what I'm saying, believe me because of what I'm doing. Because when you see the things that I do, you have seen the Father in action. Are you getting this? You know, some people will say, how come Jesus prayed to the Father? The, 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 I explained this when I explained the Trinity to you, that the context of the Trinity is salvation, right? And the Father is different from the Son. The Son is different from the Spirit. And the difference in the three personalities is really in their responsibility with respect to salvation. Raise your hand if you remember when I taught that. All right. Really in their um, responsibilities with respect to Salvation, And I, I use Pastor Finn as an example that day. He's PF, the pastor. He's also a boyfriend to someone. And um, what else? He's a designer. All right. But he's one being, this guy. Right? But as PF, he has different roles and responsibilities. As designer, he has different roles and responsibilities. As boyfriend, he has different roles and responsibilities. So, for instance, if he was the creative director as PF in Circle Church, and let's say, I don't know, maybe he, he works at Czech, and so he was, um, I don't know, let's say he was lead designer, I don't know, at Czech, and Circle Church wanted to do a, a dealing with Czech. Now, the creative director in Circle Church will need to write a letter to the lead designer at Czech. Is that correct? Even if he occupies both positions. But he needs to write that letter. Is that correct? So he'll be, pray, he'll be writing a letter to himself. But it shouldn't be him writing to himself. Rather, it will be creative director writing to lead. Do you get it? This was, this was why Jesus prayed to the Father. Because with respect to salvation, they play different roles. Are you getting it? So even if he was one with the Father, he prayed, with, he prayed to the Father because of roles and responsibilities. Are you getting this? Uh-huh. But he was 
uniquely begotten. He was God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But then we see a change of terms somewhere in Scripture. We see a change of terms some places in Scripture. Because what made him uniquely begotten, I've explained, was that he had the Spirit of God inside of him. He was God in flesh. He was literally the Spirit of God put inside human flesh. No other man had that. But the Old Testament promise of salvation is that the days are coming when I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. Do you get it? So everybody had to have the spirit of, the plan of God was for everyone to have the spirit of God inside of them just like Christ did. Is that true? Okay, so now his work as only begotten had to give rise to another work as first begotten. Are you following this? He had to give rise to another work as first begotten. So Jesus said, John 12, 24, except the corn of wheat falls to the ground and abides, it remains alone. But when it falls to the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. Now, in every other sphere of life, death is final, except in agriculture. When a seed dies, it brings forth the same so it produces after its own order. Every farmer knows that no matter how much I love this seed, if I want to see more, I must kill it. I must plant it, bury it, cover it in true fashion. And so Jesus needed to be planted, buried, so that he will rise a tree. Are you getting it? He needed to be buried a seed to rise a tree. That process, that thing now gave him a new role, a new assignment, a new description. He was now called first begotten. Do you follow? All right. So you see uses of the word in places like Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 19. No, 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 no. Verse 29, I meant. Are you there? All right. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be what? He might be what? Now, I know some people have read firstborn to mean the firstborn of the father. Then, you know, because Peter was now the official head of the church, Peter will be secondborn. Then John was meant to be thirdborn, but then Paul now came from behind and chanced him. So Paul... Is, you are somewhere around number 2 million. No! When he refers to him as the firstborn of the brethren, he's saying he's the first begotten. Now, that word in the Greek is the word prototokos. That's P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. I'll spell it again. P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. What does that word mean? It is from that word you get the word prototype. Do you understand? So when the Bible refers to him as the firstborn of the brethren, it means he's the prototype for the brothers. Do you get it? 
Also, there was a race of creatures before, a race of men before Christ died. But when Christ died and he was raised from the dead, he made it so happen that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. It's different now. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. His life is no longer after the similitude of Adam, but after the similitude of Christ. Do you get it? Jesus became the first one to die, come back to life, never to die again. Many people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament, but they all died. Jesus raised people from the dead in his own ministry, but guess what? They all died. But when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, he never died again. And so he became the prototype. Say prototype. He became the prototype for everyone who believes in him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. 18. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. Hallelujah. Are you there? Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, very quickly. It says, and he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the what? He is the what? Then what's the next word? He is the firstborn. So when we say he is the beginning, it means, or when we say he is the firstborn, it means he is the beginning of this race. Do you understand this? He is the one that began this race. He is the one that created this one. So when, when we say he's the firstborn, we're not saying, oh, he's God's first son. Do you know God called Israel in the Old Testament his firstborn? So which was really the firstborn, Jesus or Israel? But when you understand scripture, you realize even when God was calling Israel his firstborn, he was speaking about the Christ that he was to pull out of Israel to create a, a new race of men. So now, Paul says, you, you are not Israelites who are from Abraham's descent. He says, you are a Jew who is one inwardly. Do you get it now? Do you understand this? Romans chapter 2. You are not a Jew who is from Abraham. So our, Israel, our Israelite descent now is spiritual. It's no longer physical. Do you get it now? Yeah, we, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but he has made us near. Do you understand? That's what it means that he is firstborn. Praise the Lord. That's what it means that he is firstborn. So when you say, I believe in Jesus, this is what you believe. Praise Jesus. When we say Jesus is the son of God, we're not saying, oh well, God gave birth to him. And then he came, he lived a full life. And he died, he tried, Sha. That's not what we're saying. When we say Jesus is the Son of God, we are saying Jesus is God. Do you understand? Do you now see how his death wouldn't have made sense if he wasn't Son of Man first? In fact, I would always say it. He became only begotten so that he can be first begotten. God put on flesh so he could die and you can be now. You know, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was um, um, rich became poor so that by his poverty you may become rich. I've explained this scripture so many times how it, it has nothing to do with money. But rather, what you are reading when you read 2 Corinthians 8-9 is how Jesus stripped himself of divinity 
and put on humanity so that by his own humanity, you can put on divinity. Do you see the difference now? Yes. So he was only begotten son so that he can be first begotten son. What does only begotten son mean? He was the incarnate one. He was God in flesh. He was God in flesh. Not just so that he can be God in flesh and say, well, I'm God in flesh and that's fine. No, he was God in flesh so that he can be God in you. Do you understand this? Do you understand this? This is the mystery of Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not just God with us. No, no, no. There's a bigger, there's a deeper mystery behind it. Emmanuel is not God with us as in God around us, God living in our time. No, Emmanuel is God in us. Do you understand it? God is not just with us to be around us. God is with us to be in us. Do you get this? This was why he came in flesh. So when you stand and say, oh, he is the son of God, you are declaring his deity. Because to declare him son of God means to declare him son of man first. Do you get it? This is the Jesus you believe in. This is the Jesus you believe in. Anything short of this is not your Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If, and this is the interesting thing. Um, one last scripture and then we'll pray and then wrap service up. Romans 1.4. Let's start from verse 1. Have you learned something this morning? Alright, Romans 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised. So, take note, the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures we have a promise of the gospel before before time through the prophets of god in the holy scriptures and now this gospel that was promised is concerning his son who was descended from david according to the flesh next verse and was declared to be the son of god so how you know i i explained to you that the incarnation made him son of man. Is that correct? But when do we actually see him step fully into the role as son of God? Not as incarnate, not as the incarnate one, but as the resurrected one. What do we mean? He says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit. By what? Come on, are you reading with me? By what? By what? So when we say that Jesus was raised from the dead, what we are saying is not only did he come as man and die as man, because if he came as man and died as man, you can only prove that he was man. Do you understand? But the fact that he foretold his resurrection to defeat the last and greatest enemy to be defeated, which is death, and then three days after he checked out his style. Listen, he declared himself to be the son of God. Do you understand? Listen, if there was any arguments before his death that you are not God, you are God. When he was raised from the dead, all mouths must be stopped. Do you get it? All mouths must be stopped. So anybody who doesn't believe in the death of Jesus does not believe in his deity. You don't believe he was God. 
because he proved himself God by raising himself from the dead. I mean, how much more? You know, it's a big deal when we say, oh, I'll forgive your sins. Because we don't know if you're forgiving the sins or not. We don't know whether the sins were truly forgiven. But when the man says, see this temple? Pull it down. In three days, I will raise it up. They didn't understand what he was saying. He called his disciples aside. He said, I'm going, but I will come back. He said, uh-uh. What do you mean? Then three days, he died. Three days after, he woke up. Do you know, do you know, he was so sure. He was walking down Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus and he saw these two disciples. They were discussing the goings on in um, Israel at the time. They were saying, oh, he was a good man. He didn't need to die. We thought he was going to save us. And Jesus called them fools. He said, oh, fools are slow of hearts to believe. Ought not the Christ to have suffered all these things and to enter into his glory? What he was saying is, did I not teach you? Did I not tell you that I will suffer, I will die, but I will come back? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The entirety of your Christianity is hinged on his resurrection. I hope you know. I hope you know. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are of all men most miserable because in his resurrection, he proved every claim he made. He proved himself to be God. He proved himself to have the power to forgive sins. He proved himself the power to save you. Because how do you believe that he can save you from death if he can't save himself from death? You know, the thief on the cross spoke too soon. He looked to Jesus where he was hanging and he says, if you are the son of God, save yourself. And then Jesus smiles because he's like, nah, I'm a dead devil. I will wait till everything looks like it has ended. Then I'll prove myself to be the son of God. It's easy to walk up some miracle and come down from the cross. It's more difficult to rise from the dead. So Jesus answered that thief on the cross three days after. He got up and said, where is he? Look at me you understand this? Yes, sir. Know what you believe. Know what you claim to believe. You are a Christian because you believe in his, in his death, you believe in his burial, and you believe in his resurrection. Hallelujah. Just bow your head and give God thanks for the gospel. Thank him because of the resurrection. Thank him because of the resurrection. Thank him because of the resurrection. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we have prayed. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Did you learn something this morning? Listen. Media team, if you could just put up 1 Peter 3.15 for me. 1 Peter 3.15, yeah? Just put up First Peter three fifteen for me. I'm done teaching, but I want to. I want to. I want to tell you something. Is it on the screen yet? Everybody, read First Peter three fifteen together. Want to go? Hallelujah. It says, but in your heart, honor, honor Christ as holy. And it says, oh, and it says, always be prepared to give 
a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He says, always be prepared. Listen, that's what I'm trying to do this month for you. Be prepared. People will ask you why you believe what you believe. Do you get what I'm saying? It's okay to not know sometimes. It's okay to be asked and you say, oh, I don't really know. I don't know the answer to this. It's okay to not know sometimes, but it's terrible to not know every time. Do you get it? You should be able to say, you know what, I'll get back to you. Let me study on this. And you go back and study. People depend on this. Do you hear me? People depend on this thing. And here's another strange fact. If you don't really have a strong conviction as to why you believe what you believe, somebody will shift that conviction with a more convincing argument one day. Someone will. I mean, do you know the amount of indoctrination that takes place in this world? Do you know that for the Jehovah's Witness, they don't read the Bible you read. They've gone as far as rewriting statements in the original Bible to teach what they want to teach. I remember, um, was it last month? The carpenter, my carpenter came to my house. He's, he goes to Jehovah's Witness. And then he was working and then we got talking. Actually, I had a word of knowledge for him. So I gave him the word of knowledge and then we just got talking. And he told me he goes to Jehovah's Witness. And then, interestingly, I was playing a message that day in the house. So he was like, there are so many of the things he was hearing were just sounding strange to him. I said, well, why won't it sound strange to you? They rewrote your Bible. They rewrote their Bible and convinced them that that Bible was the first one written. You know how ridiculous that is? And I can make all these claims because I have... So when you have not just a religion or a religious view to things, but you have a logical way to approach things, it is more difficult to confuse you. Do you get it? The Bible was not written in English, was it? It was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So if the Greek Bible that is available for the entire world to see, the one that was originally written, was written like this, and your own Bible is written like this, who should correct who? Do you get it? There's a lot of indoctrination that goes on. And so... I remember when I was, talk, um, I was going out, these two um, members of the witness, I don't know why I'm talking so much about them today. They stopped me and then they, they wanted to evangelize to me and I commend their evangelism efforts. If, if the church evangelized like them, ha! And then they were quoting from their Bible and then they quoted John 1.1. 1, 1. Actually opened it and read it to me. John 1, 1 in Jehovah's Witness Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That A does not appear in the Bible, in the normal Bible, the one that John wrote, the letter John wrote. He didn't write A. Jehovah's Witness said, no now. He, he wanted to write A. We were there when he was writing it. So, Just so they can prove Jesus wasn't God. This is why we are taking, I will take my time this month to explain to you this is who Jesus is. This is what we stand for. This is what we believe as Christians. So that when you go outside and stand, you can talk. 
Because no piece of information leaves you the way it met you. You need to learn this thing. No piece of information leaves you the way it met you. It will stay in one corner. It's like programming. It will stay in one corner and be idle until something activates it. So it only takes another argument one day. Then what did Jehovah's Witness say to you three years ago will now start to make sense that, oh, that's what they were saying and your mind is gone. My pastor will always share a story of a, of a, of a store he went to and um, these two witness people went to, um, these two um, Christians went to witness to this Jehovah's Witness lady in the store. And they were talking to her from their Bible and the woman said, I can prove to you, small girl, from dictionary that you are wrong. And she opened dictionary. And, and he said, by the time he entered the store, the two of them were already saying, you have a point. Where? You have a point? No, you don't. That can never be you. We will teach you well enough that anybody that wants to confuse you, you say, calm down. Are, I see what you are trying to do, but this is the route you should go. Do you understand? I want you to be well studied, so well studied that when they are making arguments, you say, well, I like your argument, but if you wanted to make the argument, you should have made it this way. At least it would be more difficult for me to answer you. But now that you've made it like this, let me give you an answer. That's the kind of knowledge I want you to have. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because Christianity as a faith is not only emotional. There's an emotional angle to it, but there's also logic behind it. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more, head over to circlechurchglobal.org or visit any of the church campus addresses on the website. God bless you.